Welcome to Soil Health Lab's Plug and Plant Podcast, engaging farmers, ranchers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome to the next episode in the Plug and Plant Podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And we just got done with our first episode from our Growing Resilience series out in South Dakota. Buzz, what's this one going to be about? Well, this one is kind of a follow-on from that one. Um, It's been a wet two years, especially 2019, with uh, a lot of guys having no more than 20% of their acreage planted, especially in the Jim River area. Um, This one just talks about priorities for 2020 planting season. It was about equipment and planting, first of all, uh, and then the, the the, the conversation ran through things like herbicides, fertility, uh, should weeds be used as a cover crop. And interestingly enough, the guys were also talking about planting green, obviously, then using some of these cover crops to take moisture up. So that was that's the general flow. And again, you know, it's, it's just great listening to guys who have many, many years of experience um, and, and listening to the way they think and, and their insights. All right, well, we'll get out of the way. Once again, we'll open up with the farmer's intros, everybody saying their name, and then we'll hop right into Buzz's question. My name is Charlie Edinger, and I live in Mitchell, but mainly farm west of Mitchell. My name is Daniel Harsh, originally from Clayton, South Dakota, currently live in Freeman. Hi, I'm Craig Staley. Um, I farm with my brother Gene. Bryce Rabenhorst from Salem, South Dakota. My name is Eric Barsmith, agronomist with the NRCS. I work out of the Brookings office. Brent Woods, district conservationist in Hutchinson County. And here's Buzz's question asking about priorities for the 2020 planting season. Well, one thing for sure, I think everybody's just trying to make sure you have your equipment as ready uh, as it can be and be ready to plant in some less than ideal environments probably. And uh, I think, well, like anybody that has a cover crop that's overgrowing in the winter is probably going to want to let that grow right up to planting time for sure, you know, especially if you're planting soybeans into a, into a rye or uh, winter wheat just just to try to maybe use up some of this excess moisture. I think one thing that's easy for people when I first started putting cover crops into like wheat stubble and it was always uh, you can't dry the ground out you can't dry the ground out because you're gonna need that moisture in the spring but if you think about it even in a normal year like where we're at after you combine that wheat until, and then you plant corn in there or soybeans next spring before they really start using any moisture. If your soil, even if the profile is empty, probably holds seven, eight inches. Well, if you start looking at historical rainfall in our area, you're probably at least four inches over what that soil can hold. So you know it's, gonna, it's not gonna do good things. It's gonna run off, cause more salinity. So that's where the, you know, the use of cover crops even a normal year helps a lot, and in a wetter year, it's certainly crucial. And, and uh, I think that to get that mindset's been hard for producers, especially older ones, because you're just used to dry, drying out all the time. But trying to get that excess spring moisture into the ground instead of running it off, whether it's just erosion or through 
through a tile or whatever. It's just the best use for it. So have, have you guys noticed with the cover crops, have you noticed better infiltration of the water? I mean, I know you've been no-till for a long time, but once you started implementing the covers, have, have you seen water holding better um, from all of that, or, or what have you seen? Can't say it's measurable, but you can notice it. Um, yeah. Like I said, you, you're protecting that soil. The raindrop has got it, you know, forced to it, and you can keep the ground, the soil covered so that you know, you're not segregating your soil particles. So yeah, we're getting better infiltration that way. Um, it's increasing our organic matter, you know, slowly. Um, but yeah, and then, and then it's transpiring a lot of that moisture. So yeah, it's definitely making it easier for it to, us to handle more water. One of the nicest ways of planting beans that I like is actually into a cover crop of rye either flown on or drilled on, it can be four, five, six foot tall. That mat will enable us to actually carry over wet ground better. And what we see is the water that does run off, runs off clear. We don't have that muddy stream. And that mat will hold weeds and moisture the rest of the summer. I've yet to have my beans suffer yield loss from using too much moisture with the rye. We compare it to our neighbors or other fields we don't, and the yields have been nearly identical, um, even including 2012. Um, we ran four or five bushels actually higher where we had the rye. But that year, management, try and when to kill it. So in 2012, we killed that rye. It was less than 15 inches tall. Um, some years, we kill it at thigh high in May. You got to watch where your seedbed moisture is. You can dry that seedbed out too much. Um, but if the moisture is there, we let it grow. Um, can be an issue with the planter. You got to move your residue managers up, closing wheels. If you've got any type of spike or anything on, they can wrap. Um, we had that happen a couple times. So if it gets too tall, we end up using the drill instead of the planter. And like this spring, we've got the planter and the drill we're going through now. We'll put all new blades on the drill so that we're ready so that we can slice through that. Dull blades, too much hair pinning. And the other thing we find is um, timing of killing it. Uh, we either want to plant into it dead brown or green. If it's in that yellow stage, it's too raggy. It just doesn't cut. You don't get the seed in the ground properly. But in the planter this year, we're actually, we just finished putting Delta Force on the planter. With the wet conditions, we're looking to be able to actually pick the units up. But yet on the dry hills, we need the down pressure. In the years past, we've been watching on our monitor, we'll actually be running oh three mile an hour over the hills just to maintain soil contact with the gauge wheel and be driving eight miles an hour in the low area, trying to keep the pressure up. So that's one thing we're changing for spring is putting Delta on. Because we're kind of tired of playing with the power, the power shift going through the field. So one of the other known benefits of, of cereal arrival around that topic is, is weed control, weed suppression. Um, have, you, have you changed any of, your, any of your herbicide program or anything along those lines? following the rye or because of the rye? Is there any, any differences or things that you've noticed? One thing we learned the hard way with cereal rye, um, when I started with it, we always waited and just sprayed it off with Roundup, maybe added some type of residual with it at, at planting time. 
problem is mare's tail. We've got Roundup resistant mare's tail. So then we had these mare's tails popping up and no way to control them post. So now we do a 2,4-D and prowl put on in our cereal rye in April. We get rid of the winter annuals, we lay down a foundation, then we come back with our Roundup and another residual. And with that residual and that mat, sometimes we don't even post spray. Sure. So that's what we've noticed also. Um, I'm a little reluctant to go less residual herbicide. So we still are, are using a, a full-blown uh, residual, you know, at least three modes of action. And this past year, very few of our fields actually had a post-spray treatment with the rye. So it held. Yeah, you definitely get tremendous suppression after planting, but yeah, you just have to be careful. If you're going to mix like a pre-emergence herbicide when you're going to kill that rye, you got to make sure you don't get something that antagonizes that Roundup. You don't want anything that that burns. So I do, I do change my herbicide program when I got rye. Just try to make sure that I get that rye killed with you know Roundup and use a use one. If you're going to put a pre-emergent at that time, uh, you want to make sure it's something that's compatible and won't burn that, causing too much burning, so the Roundup doesn't translocate. Yeah, the Roundup does an excellent job, but like you said, it, antagonism's an issue. Daniel, I know you guys are using cereal rye and also have livestock. Are you utilizing any of that rye in the spring for excess forage, anything like that? Generally, I do not personally. Um, for the reason is I want that mat there controlling my weeds and also for conserving moisture. We've got some rolling hills. Um, as a agronomist also working for Mettlers, I work with some producers that do that exact thing. What we find is if we take that rye for a hay crop, say the end of May, 1st of June, the yields of the beans will generally be anywhere from a couple to 10 bushels less. Um, we're losing that mat, we're not holding the moisture, uh, where if we're holding the moisture, the bean yields the same. But yes, there, that is a potential option, but we have to be aware of that penalty on the bean side. Oftentimes that forage is worth more than what the bean penalty is and we increase that diversity and intensity, which reduces the salinity that you had talked about earlier. We have that issue in a lot of ground. Um, if we can stop that water and keep it up on the hill and not let it run out through the foothill or some other place, that's where the rye bean rotation works very well. We've actually had a neighbor um, not too far from here that's basically you know cut his rye use it for feed and then he went right back in and planted corn and then yep. he took silage off of it you know in the fall so from what i had seen it looked like it worked very well for him have any of you guys followed corn with your cereal rye it is a challenge um especially where we leave the rye there um nitrogen management allopathy effects there it can, it can set the corn back drastically if you don't manage those things. One thing we're looking at for the future is we're looking, so currently we use rye after corn. Um, normally we don't plant corn into it, but we're looking to somehow incorporate something from beans to corn. Whether it's going to be wheat or rye, we're looking at doing it in 22 inch rows. Um, that way we've got a place to plant our corn, we can allow our rye or, or wheat to continue to grow. Um, and use moisture to protect the soil because planting into a solid mat of rye 
is, is tough, is very tough. We have a shorter window um, than places like Southern Illinois and areas like that. Um, We're gonna maybe try it this year, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but we do have a fertilizer applicator that's a low disturbance coulter that we can place or index our nitrogen pretty close to the, the corn row. Okay. So we haven't done it yet, but we may be trying depending on weather. So seeding rates are high are going to make a big difference. You know, a couple bushels versus, you know, 30, 40 pounds probably makes some difference also. Depends on if it's broadcast or planted and when you're putting it on. If you can get something in early September, you know, it's going to be able to till it a lot longer. You know, the later you go, probably the more you should be seeding. Yeah, I've seeded it uh, last, not this fall, but the fall before on Thanksgiving. So, and it's still, you know, I've always got it to grow. It just, you just have to up the rate the later, but you know, it always, it's so vigorous that it always grows good. And the thing, the other thing I like about it, even after, so you plant beans into it, and then after bean harvest, the residue that's left because of that rye, you know, beans are such a low residue crop the way it is. So there's just so much more residue having that rye, that rye still there covering the soil. Which is good most years. We have run into the situation because of that extra mat, we were, have not been able to get corn in the next year and have been forced to go back to beans on beans. Um, which, it's probably a good thing. Stacked rotations are probably better than a, than a straight corn bean, but that's part of the reason we're looking to incorporate something in our bean to use some moisture and actually plant the corn in it growing um, we probably have a little more moisture than you guys do here, and that is a good thing in a way, but also a challenge. So, what about some of your? You know, we had a lot of fields that weren't planted, and we had fields that were planted and drowned out. Um, really, kind of messing with maybe some fertility programs. What are you guys looking at changing or adapting for this year as far as fertility? Well, I think just with, if, you know, if, if, if we have 20% potholes, you can't plant, you got to plant around them all, it's going to make like variable rate fertility, it's going to make it a lot more difficult than if you could just go through the whole field and trying to, I mean, like trying to soil sample last fall, people, it was just horrible. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely messed up the fertility part of it. I think all you can try to do is, you know, I'm just going to try to get, do what I can and probably split apply the nitrogen as much as possible and, and, and I'm not, you know, I'll probably maybe have to forego even if I have some areas that are low on phosphorus just because the trafficability is not worth you leaving ruts all the way across the field. I'll just wait and try to do it in the drier fall. And, yeah, I never, soil sampling was a major issue tonight, so I don't have mine done yet, but that's yeah. my plan is to get it done as I can. So you're still going to get so, that done this, this spring. That's I'm a goal. That's a goal. If I got to go out there with a four-wheeler and a hand probe, that's what I'll do. Yep. Yeah, we're sitting in the same boat. We've got some sampling done, not as much as I like. I might be depending on two-year or three-year-old samples. Um, but we're at this point facing the reality that we may not get our P and K on pre. I mean, like you said, the trafficability won't be there. We'll end up spreading it over the top in row with a high leg spreader which reduces our ability to do as much variable rate but at least hopefully we won't have it ruts made from doing that 
and we will use a pop-up. Yeah, and you're not applying the areas that you don't, you're not going to get. Yes, yep, exactly. You guys being long-term no-till planter setup and fertility on planters uh, versus somebody just starting, do you are is that going to be a challenge you think for you or getting started in the no-till at all or have any issues with that? Bean white, I mean, planting planting beans and uh, corn stalks could be an issue. We're on 22-inch rows, so we might have uh, a little bit of fun there. But we do have an air seeder, so we'll probably run some through that. Um, and then we picked up uh, it's a Yetter strip freshener, and we're going to use that in front of our corn uh, going into the bean stubble. So I think what we have should work for now. Um, It'll, it'll change every year. <laughs> yeah, and we used to do all broadcasts, and, and I've always been worried about potential losses of no-till and having, we have in our humid environment and soil surface moisture, you don't know with, with environmental conditions how much you could be losing if you don't catch a rainfall. So we, we've gone to, you know, a, you know, a high-speed colder to get it in the ground. And so... Yeah, if, if you're going to be out there and you have to broadcast, you know, you want to make sure it's stabilized and protected if you don't have a for sure rain event coming. We've gone to split applied nitrogen with nitrogen inhibitors on both applications just for that fact. Even though the last four or five years we've been getting the rains, but there's going to be a time where that stuff lays there for a week, yeah. 10 days, and we lose 20, 30% of it. Um, but that's how we kind of overcome part of that is split apply and nitrogen inhibitors. And we do use a pop-up in furrow just for the phosphorus issue. I think that could be critical this spring preventing some of the fowl syndrome. We had fields that we didn't get cover crops on until September. We didn't have the growth that I like to see. So there is that concern of, of fowl syndrome yet. Could you speak a little bit more on, on, on fowl syndrome and maybe, you know, kind of what there's different thoughts on that, whether it's going to be an issue or not. Um, I'm probably more in the camp of, I, I think we may have some issues. I think the long-term no-till, we have higher levels of soil microbes there. I don't think we're at as high a risk there, but there is definitely a lot of these fields that hardly got anything done or nothing done, that guys are going to be an issue. Um, hopefully on the long-term no-till we don't, even though we didn't get some covers planted to late. Um, but there's a lot of areas that were drowned out. And when we get that high of moisture, the microbes, the populations decrease fast. Yeah, yeah. I would still recommend some pop-up. Yeah, yeah. pop-up will definitely help a lot if you do have it. I mean, it's hard to predict fallow syndrome. I mean, if you got a cover crop or a crop growing, it probably won't happen, but should have, I mean, the pop-up does so much good anyway that I just, on all out corn and small grain, I use pop-ups and split the end with stabilizer and try to use stream bars uh, to, to manage, you know, volatilization. What are your thoughts on some of the guys that didn't get cover crops planted, let weeds go, said that's, you know, mother nature's cover crop is, you know, we're going to have fallow syndrome there, issues with that, or what do you guys think on that? Not if I let the weeds grow all the whole year, they're going to yeah, have Yeah, if you have a stand of weeds, it, it probably shouldn't be there, but... The, uh, but there's pigweeds, there's certain species of weeds that's you know not mycorrhizal friendly. So yeah. if you know your weeds very well and can trust that you've got good biological activity through the root systems, you're, you're probably fine. But 
then you're setting yourself up for obviously issues with, with seeds, mm -hmm. weed seeds. It, it'd be nice if it worked that way, but the weeds are never, never as good as a crop. And the diversity is not there. When we look at the native prairie, and we look at how many different species are there, even in our cover crops, by incorporating five, six, seven different cover crops and trying to put wheat in the rotation, we're still a long ways from what the native prairie was. Um, and the root mass, we've got some big blue Indian and switchgrass that we use for hay that we've put in, oh, that's probably almost 20 years ago. The root mass on that compared to a rye or corn or anything is way more. It's so yeah, it's trying to figure that out and mimic what was here, I think is what we need to do long-term to get our soils to that next step. That'll do it for this episode. Once again, this and the previous episode are featuring our interviews in South Dakota. We sat down with several regenerative farmers who talked to us about how soil health principles affected their operations during record rainfall. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series where we'll be going even more in depth discussing things like weed management, cover crop selection, timing of planting, and termination. Stay tuned.